Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Du lytter til Rytter Jargon podcast. Mit navn er Mads Wirt-Smith, og jeg er professionel cykelrytter. I min podcast Rytter Jargon snakker jeg med andre professionelle cykelryttere, hvor der er fokus på de gode historier, som vi oplever på vores vej. Jeg inviterer både danske ryttere og udenlandske ryttere ind i mit lille hjemmestudie, og prøver så vidt muligt også at have mit grej med ud til de løb, jeg kører. I denne episode har jeg haft besøg af Australier Nathan Haas, som kører for Kofidis. Vi kørte sammen i to år på Team Katusche og blev hurtigt gode kammerater dengang. Så vil jeg lige nævne, at jeg arbejder på at få en lækker jingle op at køre, så hvis man sidder derude med noget fedt, feel free til at smide mig en besked på min Instagram-side, som også hedder Rydderjargon. Derudover vil det betyde rigtig meget, hvis man lige smider en anmeldelse og giver nogle stjerner der, hvor du hører podcasten. Nu hvor jeg har haft besøg af Nathan, er denne episodes følge på engelsk. Jeg har ikke meget mere at tilføje lige nu, så jeg vil bare sætte samtalen i gang. Nathan Haas, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I think you know how I am, man. We just... Uh, yeah, we, we did a good ride today. <laughs> It was chaos. Yeah, I think right now we're both pretending to be more alive than we are, but here we go. We're here for a podcast. Yeah. Like, just to talk about the training, we set out to do some climbing. We both had some long efforts. I had to do three times 25 minutes at five watts per kilo. Um, and I started puncturing. Yeah, Matt's got a puncture on the first climb, like 15 minutes. He just caught me on the climb because I started a bit earlier than you. And yeah. I was like, shit, Matt is catching me, shit. <laughs> and then he catches me and he goes, hey, dude, I'm getting a flat. I was like, okay, cool, cool. That's good for my confidence. And then uh, then things were all good. We got to the top of the second climb. And then on the second effort, the downhill, Matt's is like, You oh, ripped shit. it there in the end of that effort, huh? Yeah, yeah. So my my efforts were like twenty four minutes at five watts per kilo, and then the last minute was just to go to like infinity. So it's kind of a confidence boost when you finish fast. I was like, yeah, yeah, that must be a good one. That must be good. But yeah, and then Mads flattered a second time, and he's like, "Man, do you have a tube?" I pull out my tube, and he's like, "Yeah." So I got some pretty deep wheels here. Yeah, I need a long valve. So we were stuck on the side of the road, and um, I was going to do this sort of old mountain bike trick where you actually cut the you cut the tire in half, or the tube in half, and then you just tie a knot in it, and it normally gets you home. But then we found out that the the, the actual wheel itself, like the the valve, the the tape from the the rim inside, that's what gave me the punctures yeah so there was nothing we could do and then we started pulling out like tape of our bar tape yeah, <laughs> seeing if yeah. we could like do like a dodgy taping job and then we realized straight away it was just not going to work so we rode mads up a bit of a hill and we planted at a cafe and uh his partner was doing a was it pilates i was i was, I was gonna call her to come get me and just as we sat down the it was two o'clock and there she had her first pilates class <laughs> she just signed up for her, so Yeah, I had to wait for that to be done. So we sat there for an hour, waiting for it to be done so she could come pick me up, which would also be an extra hour sitting there. But then after one hour, suddenly um, some Danish guys came by. Uh, 
Deacon Christensen. He's uh, an old pro, actually. Yeah, he's a triathlete. Man, I was going to say, those guys look so ripped. Yeah. It's like, man, that guy's wearing aero booties on a, on a training <laughs> ride. These guys are for real. He's actually a triathlete now, but he did the tour once, and he was also top 20 in Switzerland, in Tour of Switzerland. So wow. He, was, he, he had a good few years, um, and he had big wheels like I have, and he had a inner tube with a long valve. Yes. So we did some more bar tape, put it inside, and I could get to the service course of my team. They could fix it up properly, and I could keep on training. But it was a long day. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling, I'm feeling how long we just were out in the sun, and your sunburnt to a crisp. <laughs> yeah. I have a shop down long now. You <laughs> <laughs> think you're going to have trouble sleeping today? It's going to oh, be sweaty. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> maybe. So, Nathan, you're on my podcast called, in Danish, called Ruderschagong. And which is Hang on, like, I'll try to say it. Rudeshagon. 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 Yeah. So it's like, I think you could translate it into like cycling lingo, which is this like talk we have when we're on the bike, when we sit on the bus, before the races and everything. And I ask all my guests to bring some lingo to the podcast. So what do you have? Yeah, I heard this great Danish expression once in writing. It's like little peck. <laughs> <laughs> No. no, I actually do know what that means. So, uh, sorry if this is not a an X-rated podcast. I should probably keep it clean. But years ago, when we were in Australia for a tour down under Mads, we were sharing like a, a data box for for Wi-Fi, and Mads was like, "Yeah, yeah, the password is Little Peck." Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, oh, "Okay, cool, cool, cool." And after days, I was like, "So, Mads, what does Little Peck mean?" He's like, "Yeah, it means a little dick." Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like Ah, cool. <laughs> no one would guess that around Australia. <laughs> no, I don't think so, man. Yeah. I don't think so. D- Danes haven't really migrated so much to Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I think if I was going to have any jargon, um, it's a, I don't know if the word actually exists in America or England, but it's definitely an Australian word. Is Even better. The sniveller. Sniveller. The sniveller. Do you know what the sniveller means? No. So the sniveller is that guy that we all know in cycling. Everyone knows one. It's the guy that when you get into a breakaway or you're like chopping off or you're training that just sits on or does way less than everyone else. And they're yeah. like always hiding in the wind. And it's, it's, it's not just because they're like suffering. You know, it's totally cool if you've got a passenger and they're suffering and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, that guy's doing his best. It's the guy that even on a training ride always just has to have that character about them that's just like always have to snivel like, <laughs> i just have to snivel it's he's, like he's hit on the wheel and then you wait until the final sprint yeah it's like the golem of bike riding or the last two minutes of a of a swapping off and then he he puts the hammer down yeah and you're like yeah. oh thanks sniveller and uh, then they win and it's like that sort of like you just imagine that they put their arms up like chris horner when he won that stage in the vuelta he just yeah. looks like a broken hawk and you're just like yeah you won but you're a sniveller yeah okay that's a good one that's a good one good to new. So let's get into it. Um, your favorite training loop. Don't say the coast here. Everybody, everybody <laughs> says the coast. So I'm going to go with the coast in uh, the Costa Brava. Um, you know, I won't say it's like the most beautiful bike ride, but it's the one that I kind of grew up on. It's like been my bread and butter. And it's every time I go back to Australia, it just reminds me of how I actually became a good r- bike rider because it just inspired me to love jamming super hard so i grew up in a town called canberra which is the capital of australia most people think it's sydney but it's actually canberra and um it's a it's an amazing cycling community so like you know a few years ago we had a pretty good representation in the world tour we had michael rogers we had matt Heyman, rory sutherland uh 
uh, Michael Matthews, myself. Um, so there were five world tour. Now there's Jay Vine as well. He's, he's from Canberra. Um, so we have this Saturday morning bunch and it leaves at 6.30 from the bike shed in Phillip. Yeah. So I doubt there's any Australian... That's what people do in Australia. They go out super early because it's so fucking warm. Yeah, and, and it's also because like a lot of guys that you know race the criteriums or the club races, because like, they're so, so motivated. They go out and do the bunch rides before work. So like before they start their 8.30 mm. job, they get up for the 6 a.m. during the week. And Saturday they get a bit of an extra sleeping because it starts at 6.30. So we start off and we immediately just start jamming on the front. And the first turn, it's just like whoever's doing it, they're doing like five, 550 watts. It's just like full gas from the start. So like you, you want to have definitely swallowed your breakfast by then. And yeah. I, think, I think I've seen a few guys, you know, chuck a little bit up in that oh. first part. But it's just literally it's full gas. And sometimes it can be like 150, even 200 people start. But the the good riders will be about 40 of us. We sort of sit at the front turning and everyone else at the back is just hoping to hold on for as long as they can. And it's quite a cool ride in that we actually go past all of the different embassies. We actually go past the Danish embassy. We go down the main avenue, which kind of goes through the guts of Canberra. And we actually pass Parliament House. Which How is, is the area there? Is it, is it hilly or is it mountains or is it just flat? So Canberra is actually a... <laughs> I wouldn't call it's it... It's under, underwater, huh? Is that the, close to the water? No, no, no. So we're no. actually two hours inland oh, okay. from, from the ocean. The sort of like strategic that all national capitals tend to not want to be on the coastline. It's safer if they were to be mm. bombed in wartime. But that's a bit old school. But the uh, Canberra is actually inside a big valley. So if you want to climb in Canberra, there's more of it than you can poke a stick at. But the through the middle of Canberra is actually perfectly flat. So like the first part of the ride is just this like flat launch all the way past uh, Parliament House. You go over Commonwealth Bridge on the lake. So you're going past like the National Library, you're going past the, the High Court of Australia. And it's actually quite a beautiful way to start the day because like the all the rowers are out on the water and the, mm. the sun is sort of like off and rising as we're going. So it's it's very beautiful, but the thing that I love about it is just pure bike riding. Everyone is swapping off literally as hard as they can. And we do an hour of swapping off until we get to the first sprint point. Mm. And then the first sprint point, it's like a set, it's like a set line that we all know. And it turns into a race. Like some guys launch off early and there'll be like two, three guys swapping off and then the bunch has to get it. And of course you always have a couple of snivelers that are just like waiting for the sprint. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've played all the tactics, but I always try to like light it up early to just make yeah. it as hard as possible. And then there's this like huge 500 meter straight that everyone does a bunch sprint for. And like, it's open road. So like, you do have to be careful for cars, but you know how it goes. Some guys <laughs> tend to take a bit more risk than you want to. And like I've... a group of 100 people all sprinting for the same line. Yeah. yeah by then it's whittled down. Yeah. Of course. It's whittled down a lot. Um, but then what it, the cool thing is after the sprint, we actually kind of wait for everyone. So we go super slow for another 5K. We just sort of like catch our breath, drink a bit, talk some shit. And then the race starts again. So we hit on we hit onto this like next part of the road called the G, GDE. It's like the Gungahlin Drive Extension. And now we actually start going up some undulations. So it's like 1 to 2K at like 5, 6%. And then you've got like these big fast dips. Yeah. And that goes for another 30 minutes or 25 minutes that goes for and then we turn right and we actually finish on top of a climb so it's like a 2k climb at eight mm. percent and it's just an absolute all-out smash fest to the top of five minute 
all out. All out. And it's, sometimes it's actually been my, my biggest five minutes for the year. Yeah. Like I often, I often hit my records on it because it's just like, it's just pure racing. Yeah. And like generally speaking, everyone's pretty honest. But yeah, again, you always get the one or two snivelers that have just waited because they're a climber. You know, they don't want to waste mm. their energy on the on the flat but uh yeah you get to the top and it's just like you it's all ones and twos at this point you everyone's absolutely waxed but then again we all kind of wait so like anyone that was dropped on the first big pull-off section they actually don't do that extra extension they go straight into the city and we all join up at the same cafe so like everyone kind of arrives in drips and drabs but more or less at the same time and then the first coffee happens and there's oh you have a coffee stop there yeah and there can be like a hundred of us all at the same cafe oh, and like they all know that we're for the cafe oh man they love it they've got a yeah. hundred dudes all ordering heaps of flat whites and banana bread and yeah it's it's honestly it's just that real feeling of like community it's like a cycling tribe everyone's just so stoked they're talking about what happened on the ride they're laughing at a couple of guys and like a lot of the girls like gracie elvin um as well she gets super amongst it and it's like it's just a really big community thing and um you know it's it's just a great cycling world in canberra so then you're at your coffee stop so what's your menu there like your australian menu because in spain you would go for the bulk like everyone with the tortilla and uh, and then coffee here but uh what's your coffee stop in australia So like I'm going to make a big call here and maybe uh, Denmark I've I've heard the coffee's pretty good but I'm going to say it that the coffee is the best in the world in Australia. We invented the flat white. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no one does latte art like in Australia. So you know, it's a bit of a funny one because we arrive at the cafe at like 8:30. So we've done two hours of riding and Like a lot of us actually go and do extra kilometers afterwards. So it's not like we want to sit down and have a big breakfast, but some people do. So it's like, you know, poached eggs, salmon, avocado on toast. Yeah. And um, the only shit thing in Australia is like avocado on toast can be like $17. So, you know, you want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to. Uh, bring, Sounds like the English prices. Yeah. It's it's super shit. It's not like being in Spain or France. It's just expensive. But when you have an avocado toast here in those fancy cafes and it's like, five six euros you're like Ooh, damn should i have two it's <laughs> expensive here it's easy to be skinny in australia because you just can't afford to get fat <laughs> but i think you know for the most of us like the the real classic in australia is the banana bread yeah so it's like a big big fat cut of banana bread it's heated up comes with a nice fat chunk of butter and it just oh, it melts in perfect so nice when you have that with your one or two flat white coffees as sort of like a mid-ride break yeah i would say I'd say that's my most Australian memory of food as a bike rider. And yeah, and so the group ride ends at the cafe or you keep going? For a lot of people it ends at the cafe because yeah. they just come for the kind of come for the vibes as yeah. much as anything. You know, everyone gets a good workout, but it's it's really the vibe of it. But then there'll be that 20 guys that really take their game seriously that are tr Because a lot of guys are training for the Australian National Championships. And like one of the funny things about nationals is that anyone can enter. Like As long as you've got a bike license, you can yeah. start. So sometimes we have 250 guys starting the nationals. And it's like the most dangerous part of your year is the first few laps of that. Because yeah, yeah, you're kind yeah, of, of like navigating through guys that probably aren't fit enough to even do you know four or five laps. But they spend their whole summer training for it. So there's there's like a massive group in Canberra that are all training for, for nationals and a lot of them are really good. Like they'll be in all part of the different continental teams in Australia that race through Asia. So they're normally pretty fit at this time of year. So they'll be normally on Saturdays, it turns into a six hour ride where we go and do this other loop called the Uriara Cotta. So yeah, 
by the time you get home, it's twelve thirty one, and you've done six hours over two hundred k's, yeah. and yeah, then you just hopped it back to bed because you were just dead. Yeah. <laughs> so there you have it. If you ever find yourself in Canberra, you can go try smash some Stravas. That's it, man. Anyone's welcome. Possibly, possibly going to be impossible to do it. All inclusive. Cool. Moving on. What is your craziest day ever on a bike? I've been, this is my 10th year in the world tour. And I did quite a few years mountain biking, world cups, and then quite a few years continental on the road. So I've been doing it for a while. And when I get asked this question, it just like, I can't think of any other day except for the Garvia Stelvio stage in 2014 at the Giro where the one Thomas Degenti wrote everyone behind, like out of the wheel. No, 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 it wasn't that day. It was the day that Quintana uh, flicked Rigoberto Uran yeah. for the pink jersey where we started in this town. I actually, I'm really bad with Italian town names in the Giro because once you've done the Giro enough times, it just feels like everything is San Marco. Or when you do a grand tour, when you're one week into the grand tour, you don't even realize where you are. No, no. You're just looking at that book and you're like, all right, we're getting through the pages. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting and, through it. Oh, shit, today's Gavi and Stelio. So we just had the second rest day, which everyone knows can be like 50-50. You can come out of it feeling fantastic because you actually got rest or you can be like, this is going to be the worst day of <laughs> yeah. my damn life. Yeah. So, you know, you're sitting on the start line nervous about that anyway. Um, fortunately, I'd actually been having really good legs that Giro um, and was climbing well. So I was, I was more on the slightly confident side. But when we started, it was actually snowing in the village where we were and we were at a thousand meters. The, the snow wasn't like gathering, but it was snowing. And we were like, if it's snowing here... Going to 2,500 well, meters. I think the top of Stelvio is 2,900. Yeah, it's close, it's, it's close 2,700, to... 2,800. Yeah, it's, it's super high. So we knew that we were going up the Galvia first and then the Stelvio. And then we finished on another... It's, it wasn't like... Uh, it wasn't Lago de Cancano, but it was, it was close to Cancano. And... We, we just were all like, this is super shit. Like, oh my God, I can't believe we're starting. Like, oh, what is going on? And the organizers were like, if it's really bad at the top of the Gavia, like everyone can maybe hop in buses. We'll see what we can do, but we're going to start. And then all of the riders kind of made like a pact and they were like, we just don't attack. Nothing happens here. And then we got two Ks into the race and then a Katusha ride. Oh, I was, was going to say Bariani. <laughs> so it was. It was Bariani and Katusha hit off the front and then it was like, shit, the truce is over. Like, yeah. you know, we can't just let them fly up the race. So then the race went absolutely batshit crazy. And then I was super lucky that I was on a really good day. So I got over the top with the front group of about 30 guys. So when you can go hard in the cold, you stay warm. So at yeah. that point, I was at least like, all right, this is okay. But you still have 22 kilometers of downhill from the Gavia. And that was the problem. Yeah. So we started going down the Gavia and like, I was a little bit dropped because I was trying to put on so many jackets because I was like, I've only got one option. And then I finally kind of got back to the tail end of the group and I saw this like weird red light in the distance. I was like, oh, what's that? I can't really make it out because there was just so much snow falling and it was also foggy at the same time. The visibility was like 10, 15 meters at the most. So I was going down and then I was like, I might just move to the right here. And one of the race cars had kind of like hit a snow wall and was yeah. just parked into the side. If I hadn't moved, I would have gone smack bang into the back of this car. <laughs> and then my glasses were getting so covered in ice that I couldn't see through them. So I had to take them off and I had nowhere to put them. So I just threw them. I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm yeah, in like, yeah. I'm in crisis mode here. And then 
my eyes were in so much pain because the snow was just going directly into them. Yeah. And I was like, this is the worst thing in my life. So I make You're it You're Australian. Probably the first time you ever saw snow. <laughs> You're like, what is this incredibly hard water? <laughs> this rain is very strange. I remember a few years back, we were traveling together to Stradivianchi. And it was snowing when we landed in Pisa. And you were like, oh, you're doing videos of the snow from the car and everything. I'm like... <laughs> Dude, you've never seen snow before. <laughs> no, this is maybe my fifth time. It's, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, so um, I started and I, we started on the Stelvio and then the problem was like you hit the bottom of a climb like directly after such a long yeah. descent that my legs just turned to shit. Yeah, you go straight into Bormio and straight onto the climb there. So then there was like the group of 30 and there was like two of us that dagged off the back and I'm like, all right, well, I'm okay because this like... 180 guys behind me like yeah. i will find groups so the first 10 minutes were pretty tough on my legs and then i was like there's no group <laughs> so i just sort of like cracked on and then um i was really lucky that one of my directors robbie hunter came up next to me on the car and i was like shivering going up the climb wearing every jacket i had and i couldn't get to my food and he's just leant out of the window and he's just opening gels and just like milking them into my mouth and he, <laughs> he pumped about five or six gels into my mouth and i was just trying to swallow it was it was like pretty intense because you just your body doesn't want to eat at that point. Yeah. Like you're just so past being okay. But like I'm glad he did because I think if I hadn't eaten, it would have just been like game over, right? Yeah. So you know, I've gone over the Stelvio again, fully alone. I'm like, what has happened behind? Like this is insane. And then I take that next descent just super slow. Like I was just breaking through every corner. And then breaking on the downhill so I could pedal harder. Like it yeah, might sound yeah, yeah. stupid, but I was like, if I can pedal, I can stay warmer. And I don't care about time. Like obviously the race is Yeah, like, you're safe for the time limit and fuck. Imagine being in that Gruppetto that day. So anyway, like the Gruppetto was the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like I knew that they weren't gonna cut the Gruppetto even if we were an hour out of time because it was the whole bike race. Yeah. But what I didn't actually know was like in front, like on my, on my radio, I sort of heard some like some sort of shit talk. I was like, ah, and it was going on for way too long. I was like, what is going on up there? And it actually turned out that the RCS had gone in front of the race with a scooter with a red flag saying that the race is neutralized. But Quintana attacked at the top for the downhill and Hegedal followed. And then the whole controversy was like, you know, was the race actually neutralized or wasn't it? And then that was where all the big time splits happened. But I finished up the last climb and it was like, it was probably one of the most empty feelings on a bike I've ever had just in terms of my legs. Like my body was almost in shock from what had just happened, but I'd gotten through the day a lot easier than most. And I'd actually found out that more or less what happened even on the Gavia was that every single car just told the riders, guys, just hold on. And there's photos of like 10, 12 riders on one team car just ah, being pulled yeah, yeah. up. But they all said that that was the worst mistake they made because once you stop pedaling, they got cold. They got super yeah, yeah, cold. Of course. So Tyler Farrar was one of them. He was the sprinter on Garmin at that point. And he finished like 10 minutes behind our massive group. And he was the last rider of the whole day. And this is like a guy that was like, one of my idols and was kind of like a warrior, you know, he was like a guy that never showed pain. He would get up from a crash and just like, you know, spit in his own wounds and just like rub them out and be like, yeah, you know, here we go. We're good. And then he gets into the car and I was like, I was pretty warm at this point. So I was like helping him take his jackets off. Cause you know, your hands start working and, and he's like, all right, dude, thanks man. Like, thanks. I'm good now. And he's just sat there and he's just not talked for two minutes. And then 
I've never seen a man cry like this in my life. Like it was like someone had died in his family. I have that experience a few times actually where I'm so cold that I just started crying. It's just the most horrible feeling ever. And you're like, anyone else would just pull over and hop in a cafe or a bar or whatever. But you couldn't, man. Yeah, it was yeah. like you're in the Giro. You've got to get through this thing. So then um, our director came up to us that afternoon and he was like, all I want to say is I'm really sorry you had to do that. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. I'm just really sorry. And then he left the room and it was like, even the directors knew how fucked up the day was. Yeah. But anytime I've been cold in my life now, I just think back to the Garvia Stelvio stage of the Jew and I'm like, you're cold, man, but you aren't that cold. <laughs> Sounds like a horrible day, but also, uh, yeah, crazy. Good story, man. What's your favorite race? That's a hard one. It's a hard I one. I know you love Amstel, but you also love being at home, racing at home. Yeah, I think, you know, just as a raw race, I think it's really hard to choose between, like, I've sort of got four one-day classics that are just my absolute favorite. And I don't know if it's because I'm good at them or it's because I actually love them, but it's Amstel Gold, Strada Bianchi, and then the Quebec and Montreal races yeah. in Canada. They're just, all of them are awesome for their own reasons. Like, Canada, you just feel like a VIP from the second you arrive, and you're riding through some of the most beautiful historic cities, and the crowds are great. Amstel is just like a matrix of crazy yeah. and um, super hard short climbs, which has sort of always been my bread and butter as a cyclist. And then Strada is gravel, which is just my other passion. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, though, is as a whole, I just love doing Tour Down Under. Yeah. It's the, the vibe's unreal. You know, we we don't really get to connect with Australian cycling very often. You know, we're, we're in Europe for 10 months of a year, and it's just so nice to, to go home and and feel genuinely the love and the encouragement from all the Australian fans. And um, and it's just nice to also race through the gum trees of Adelaide Hills yeah. and and feel like, you know, this is this is my turf. You know, I spend... It's also super nice organized. Like, it's really... Everything is just perfect. You fly there with Singapore Airlines. You fly business class. Nice hotel, Hilton in Adelaide, in the city of the town. Like, super good training the days before. And, and the race is super cool itself. Yeah, and you, you stay in one hotel, and most of the stages you ride to the start and ride home. So it's just... It just feels like the best way to start a season. And yeah. and like a lot of the European riders are really cottoned onto it now. It's like, it's a cool experience if you can handle the heat. But uh, that's the other thing too, is like we've spent the whole summer getting heat acclimatized and training. And then the Europeans come over and they've just got this massive handicap because they've been yeah. in like minus four. <laughs> I did it once and I, I don't think I'm ever going to do it again because <laughs> uh, I didn't handle the heat very well. Um, but then again, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now I'm like you know you, you you tend to forget when shit's been bad, and now I'm like oh, I want to go on this trip again because it's just a cool trip. But the the race days we had there, I was suffering like hell. I had heat strokes three or four days in a row, and it was not good. But it was cool to be there. Yeah, I mean the thing too is though like we're not racing in like Mickey Mouse heat. Like one of the days was 47 and I also got heat stroke and it fucked me for two weeks. Yeah. Like I missed the Cadell race. I didn't even, like, I think I started 80 Ks of it and I just, as soon as the race even started going fast, it was like, it felt like it was a motorbike in front of me and I got dropped. And it wasn't like I didn't have good form. Like I went in one stages of Oman a week later. It was like, I was fit, but once you go deep at 47 degrees, I mean, it doesn't matter if you spent the whole summer doing that. It's, it just, fucks you up yeah it fucks your buddy so you had some good times there uh you were third of all one year no oh, oh no you lost the podium by yeah. on the last stage we were actually we finished on the same time but it came down to stupid like stage placings yeah so jay mccarthy finished two places in front of me overall from all the stages combined which was pretty frustrating but that's that's the way the cookie crumbles yeah yeah and then when you're there, you spend, after Adelaide, after Tour Down Under, you have one week in Geelong for the Cattle Evans race. And that's a whole other contrast to Adelaide, which is just a super nice city. And then you go to Adelaide, which is this small town an hour away from Melbourne. There's nothing there. Uh, and you've been away for quite a while. I have. So I, you really start to get bored there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Geelong's, <laughs> Geelong's, it's cute. But yeah, once you've been to the two cafes and gone for a swim, you're like, okay, yeah. so we're pretty done here. <laughs> but we struck gold. Oh man. Yeah. Man, I don't think anyone did the Cadell race Everybody like you and I did. Everybody saw that on, on my inst- on the Instagram page of the, of the podcast. That arcade was the saving of our week there. Like, oh man. It's just, it's one of the best arcades I've ever been in my life. Like, I haven't been in anything better. There's one just out here in, in Salt, just next to Girona, but it's nowhere near the same. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I, but also like, there's no memories like that. We, so Mads and I, like after dinner every night, cause like we were on Team Katusha, which was a great team, but the team that they sent to Australia that year was just the most dull humans you could have put yeah. in a, in a group. It was like... There was not much action going on. No, they're the kind of guys that like, you know, they finish a two-hour ride and they go and hop in their compression boots, close all the blinds to make their room like a dark cave and just sit there and watch boring Netflix until dinner. And then they do the same just after dinner. And at dinner as well, they weren't even talking to each other because that's like... The, no, no uh, 
disrespect to them. They're just kind of like introverted, quiet dudes. But mm. Mads and I, after a couple of days, were like, we can't handle this. <laughs> so we just went for a walk and we're like, hang on, what's this? <laughs> and we found this arcade. And then the first night we were like, it's good. Oh my God. And then the next night we went back and we bought like a VIP card and loaded the yeah. shit out of it with money. And we were like, all right. Slowly we figured out which machines were the ones to get, like where we got most tickets from our winnings. And the best one was this, where you throw balls and knock down clowns. <laughs> then we got off this technique. There was two machines, so we took all the balls from both machines and put in one, and we threw like six balls at a time. Yeah, we, we even stopped trying to like aim specifically for one clown. <laughs> yeah. We just like went for the shotgun effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then one day we go, we we are staying here at this machine. We go to another one. See, like, okay, there's not that many tickets here. We won't get any big prices from this. So we go back, and then two girls are, are at, the, at one of them. And we're, like, going, getting ready to do our technique with the balls, but then suddenly there's no, not many balls. So the girls took some of the balls, and Nathan, in just pure, I don't know if you can call it excitement, but, like, throw a ball, everything he can, and says, bitch is Fuck us. <laughs> and I was like, dude, they heard you. Yeah. So I, two I minutes later, we had all the balls again. Yeah, they kind of left. They're like, oh, God. But yeah, yeah, like, I often forget, like, when I'm in Europe, like, I, I know a lot of people speak English, but like, it's sort of that thing where, like, you feel like you can say what you want because you're like, oh, nine times out of ten, you know, I could, no one really paid attention to what I was saying. But then I'm like, hang like on, the shit. Like, have here. Like, we can say Yeah, you guys have, like, a, a secret code. But then I'm in Australia and I'm like, hang on, they even speak Australian English. So, like, they even picked up <laughs> everything I just said. So, I, fe yeah. I felt like a bit of a dick afterwards. But then we got all our balls back and we got some tickets. So, I think yeah. we found out who the real winner was. Yeah. In the end, I think I came away with a pair of, uh, what they call, like, cozy sandals for for a home with a with an emoji on it and a bit more stupid stuff but did, uh, did we take a basketball as well i think we got maybe. a basketball but then we never played with it because we yeah. suck at ball sports yeah <laughs> yeah like oh yeah we're cyclists <laughs> okay what's the worst race for you then i think there's maybe two... it's not that much about the the race itself but everything around it and uh, it's the only race that I always am scared to get put on every season is a race called Knocker, of course. Oh, yeah. And it's a crash like, race. It's just, so it was the first race I ever did in Europe as a world tour rider. So, like, I'll just do a little bit of a catch up on my history as a rider. Like, I was mountain biking and then I started doing road in Australia and I did like all the Asian races and I signed world tour from all of this. And then next thing I'm in Europe and I'm like, hang on, I'm in the world tour. And I've never raced in Europe before. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is really intimidating. And the yeah. team's like, oh, we'll put you in one of the small Belgium classics. See how you go. I did Nukuda twice and I crashed out both times. I'd never seen anything like it. Like I felt like it was a scene from like D-Day where they're running up the beaches <laughs> and just guys next to you are just like getting exploded by a landmine. And then the next guy's getting like machine gunned down and you're like, how am I still up? How am I still up? And yeah. then then we're kind of going towards this final and there's this horrible little like false flat uphill where i was just like these guys are going full gas what's happening what's happening oh, yeah, before the, you go up this drag and then you turn right down to the hole yeah like, but before that there's these two houses 
that have these like sharp corners that are just facing you as the rider. Yeah. And you've got to like squeeze into it. It's like a, it's like a salt timer, you know, like it feels like 10 guys can go through, but there's like 400 behind you trying to get in. So anyway, I was just really shit in the bunch at that point. So I was just like stuck at the back and was like, oh no, like, damn, like I can't help the guys. And then I come around the corner, we go down this little downhill and then I saw what was just like a mincemeat version of the Peloton. Like I've never seen so many guys crashing and screaming like, oh and, and I look over and this, this one guy that I knew really well, um, who'd really helped me out, you know, in my time in Australia, Kunda Court, he's sitting there and like, I was like, he's more blood than he is skin. Like I've never oh. seen anything like this. And, and like I roll up, and I could go around the guys. And then I was like, hang on, I just finished like top 40. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was at the back of the race. Yeah. Everyone was down. And every time I've done Nokra course, it's just been exactly the same experience. Yeah. So like I've, I've gotten to the point now where I'm like, oh, guys, I'll ride early. Like make sure you've like done your job because like there is no way on God's green earth I ever want to contest <laughs> that final because I just have too much respect for my own skin. Yeah. Okay. So um, another one. I ask all the guests, who is your nemesis in the world of cycling? Oh, we all have them. We do. And I'm really lucky that he's retired now. He's then you can out. say whatever you want. So it's a guy. And I think not many people in the world of cycling actually know who this guy is. He's a bit of a guy that flew under the radar. But he seemed to be always good enough to always be there, but never good enough to really be like a deep finalist. Yeah. But it was sort of like as soon as it was hard, he was always the guy next to me. And it was just like, dude, fuck off, man. Like, stop fighting me for this shit. And he was a Russian called Chachevich. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard many, many, many stories about him from, from my teammates in Kat yeah, yeah, from our teammates in Katusha. So he was on Katusha. And, like, I should be careful what I say because I heard he became – well. Even before he retired, guys were asking him, what are you going to do after cycling? He's like, gangster. <laughs> but, like, I don't think he was joking. So, like, maybe I should be, like, careful. I should Maybe we should, like, bleep his name. I should be like, who's your, who's your nemesis? Beep. Yeah. Chavich. <laughs> um, but this guy was insane. And, like, it was at Tour Down Under one year. He was he was next to me and Hejdal. So this was in 2012. Yeah, my first, my first ever World Tour race. And uh, he came up and he, like, he kind of just like chopped rider on this like piece of road that there was no stress. Like yeah. fair game. If you're going to fight in the final, like anything goes in the final, like there's no, yeah. uh, there's no honor amongst thieves. We get it. Yeah, yeah. But when you're like 80 K's out from the finish and the race is just starting to warm up and someone comes in and like almost ends your leader of the race's life. I like yelled over. I was like, man, what the fuck? And then, he just lifts his front wheel up and starts smashing it down. And I'm like, bang, 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 bang. And he goes, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> and from that day onwards, I was like, that guy is my nemesis. Yes. <laughs> Boy, that was a good one. Um, best and worst roommate you ever had. I'm not being biased because we're on a podcast, but you were definitely one of my favorite roommates. Is like, oh, we had fun. There's so few guys that sort of like sit on your same vibration yeah. as you. Like, you know, sometimes you're like, dude, will you shut the fuck up and stop talking? And then some other guys, you're like, man, are you alive? Like, yeah. what's going on? <laughs> but yeah, we always had so much fun, man. And like, whether we were racing awesome or whether we were sort of just like coming back from illness or injury or just working for other guys, like we always just had the same vibe in the room. So it was like, it was always just really fun. And yeah. we talked shit. We, 
kind of like having music at the right time, but also quiet at the other time. Um, but Hejidal was another guy and Tyler Farrar, like I was on a team with Tyler for six years of my career. And it was almost like, as soon as we were at a race together, it was like, no one even thought twice. It was just like Tyler and I were in the same room. We were, it was the same as us. We just, Mm. we had so much fun that the, whatever the outcome of the race was, whether it was like we won or we crashed, we just had such a good time. And it's kind of the best it's the best medicine for success and for failure in cycling yeah. is forgetting about the day and moving to the next. But then, um, the worst roommate I ever had, um, oh, that's a hard one. You know, some guys fart a lot and that's pretty gross. Some guys, oh, I do that too. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but, but like fighting a bit, it's like, okay, we eat a lot of gels. Like, you know, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah, but when some guys, protein <laughs> drinks also get your stomach going, but some guys are like, dude, what's happened to you, man? see a doctor this isn't right <laughs> um but then like for me the one that really kind of like fucks me up is like i'm definitely more of an extrovert i have my introverted time but like i'm more of an extrovert yeah so when someone literally doesn't talk to you for a week it's really odd like i prefer to be in a room alone and there was a guy um I started calling him Stracula the Dracula, um, <laughs> but his name was Dimitri Strakov. Ah, and yeah, yeah. Ah, he also he didn't speak English. Don't get me wrong, though. Super nice guy. Like there was nothing. He was this guy who got in Katusha. He started as a stashier, and then he got his contract by the year where everything fucked up in Katusha. But like super nice guy. Like it wasn't like he had a bad vibe or anything. But his English was so bad that he just. You'd be like, good morning. He's like, morning. Yeah. And then before he'd go to sleep, he'd go, good night. And that was it. But he'd sit on his phone. So he had like a mobile phone that clicked into this like gaming device and he'd have his headphones in and he was playing these like super violent war games. But he was like online with his friends, but on the phone had these like two little metal like clicker things that like hit your screen. So every time you like the machine gun would go off, I would literally hear this like, tuck, 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 and then I'd hear him just speaking this like scary Russian, like to his friends. And then he'd kill someone and he would always go, and I felt like I was sleeping with one eye open because I was like, oh my God, this guy showed me all these photos of him in the like Russian military with these like massive guns. And I'm just like, I feel like this guy could just like kill me in my sleep and I wouldn't even know I was being killed. Like, this is insane. But he was like, he got a stashier contract contract with the team and he was actually better in his stashier contract than when he got the actual contract. And it was like, I did the tour of Britain with him. He was incredible. Yeah, he was incredible. Incredible. And he didn't understand anything. And one day there's a strong break up the road and we, we, we really have to be there. Um, and they have 45 seconds. Tony tried, Polly tried, I tried. We all tried. And then... Starkov is sitting there and all we can say to him because he didn't even understand go so we had to (laughs) 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 and then he just went boom and he bridged that gap and it was strong riders in that breakaway no that guy's that guy is an absolute weapon on a bike and like I said super nice guy but just in terms of sitting in a room Oh, it was just an awkward, uncomfortable silence. And then yeah. you're hearing... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so which bike has meant the most to you through time? Oh, I love my DeRosa now. 
definitely the best disc brake bike I've ever ridden, which for me was like, you know, when disc brakes first came into the Peloton and then we started using them, it was like, oh, I love the braking power, but the bike just doesn't work right. Yeah. And then I hope Because it was rim brakes bikes where they just put disc brakes on. So it wasn't made for disc brakes. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I think a lot of the, like the torque tolerances through the bike weren't designed for that extra force. And then all of a sudden you've got the, you know, the, the through axles adding all this extra stiffness on mm. a bike that was designed to have a nine millimeter quick release. So, you know, technology has come a long way and I'm really loving my DeRozan now, but I think in terms of any one bike that like, I'm actually trying to investigate who has it because I wouldn't mind buying it as just a bit of like cycling memorabilia for myself was in 2017 on dimension data, we were sponsored by Cervelo and they had just released a prototype of the R5. Yeah. And because I was always the guy that wanted to be on the R5, even though they were like, Nathan, you're more of a fast guy. I was like, no, but I prefer the feeling of a bike that feels like a bike. You know, when you're on a bike that's purely aerodynamic, it's like a classic frame and just classic. It's just triangles. When you're out of the saddle, it like has that predictable flex and acceleration. And then when you're on a downhill, you feel like you can actually really move it off its line if you're in trouble. Whereas an aero bike, I've always felt once you're on that corner, you're really stuck on your line because yeah. it's just a blade. Yeah. Um, so they were like, Nathan, you're one of our big riders on the team and I know you love the bike. So we're going to give you the prototype. And the coolest thing was I was like testing this prototype in the world tour, but it had this paint job on it with all these like cool little dots and everything that you normally see on cars. Yeah. So it's, it's the, it's that paint that you put on a car. That's also a prototype or new that if you take a photo of it, it doesn't really give you the real shape. Like it distorts the photo. Mm. So it was the coolest paint job I ever had on a bike. And it also just felt cool to be on like the prototype from a company as cool as Cervelo. Yeah, yeah. And it was the, the bike that I was second on Wollonga on and I was fourth at Amstel on it. So like I've got a lot of good memories from that bike and you know, it, it got sold at the end of the season. And if there's a, de- if there's a listener in Denmark that happens to have my 2017 Cervelo R5 special paint, let's talk. Yeah. You can earn a big box on that. <laughs> But yeah, let's talk a bit more about bikes because now the bikes and all the equipment in modern cycling, that's the game changer. Like if you're behind on equipment, you have no chance. It's uh, You can look at the TTs like this, like let's say 10 years ago, if you did a bike fit, proper bike fit on the TT bike, you would be going for the win. If you don't do it now, you're going to struggle with the time limit. Yeah, it's that extreme. It's that extreme. It's a space race, man. It's yeah. it's whoever, whichever companies have the most money to be able to invest, produce the fastest bikes. And it's it's not that the smaller companies aren't trying. It's just when you have a company, say like Specialized, yeah. that have their own uh, ability to make the carbon molds in their factories, and then they have their own wind tunnels. You know, it's it's all of those costs for a smaller bike manufacturer that are just on top, on top, on top. So. They can make maybe three or four prototypes with, you know, a few changes each time. But then all of a sudden they're at $5 million and they're like, shit, that's, that's insane. But with the big companies that have already invested actually in the process, like the manufacturing process, it doesn't cost them $5 million because they already have the staff, they have the engineers, they're not hiring them out. 
and then they have the facilities to keep testing it and testing it and testing it. So when they finally release a bike, it's like it's the state of the art. So every time a small company puts something out, it's catching up, but the other companies already jumped ahead because yeah, they're ahead, testing yeah. it. But then the, the other thing that I'm finding the most frustrating and, um, you know, maybe this is a bit of a contentious topic, but, you know, when a, when a team can put $20,000 for a rider to get a custom handlebar made and have them on all four of their TT bikes, it's not really fair. And I think that that's something that the UCI hasn't like really looked into. They're like, oh, yeah, it follows the rule of like it's not further mm. than 10 mils from the bars to the top and this and that. But it's basically it's created a class system within cycling. And I don't think that really shows the true values of sport about fairness because it's well, now... You can see it in, in our team, for example. Like some of us, we have these special designed bars on the TT bike and I have it so I love it but I also think that everybody should have it because also one day we're all in a TTT in the team soundtrack correct so everybody should have the fastest possible equipment in my opinion I agree and it's sort of one of those things that like you know Formula One even though there's huge discrepancy between cars you know they all have to use the same tires Mm. There's engine restrictions that everyone has yeah, to follow. Yeah, because in, in cycling, it comes down to everything now. Even everything. It's the tires, it's the, it's the frame, it's the wheels, it's the clothing, it's the helmet. It's even down to the socks. Like if you're riding aero socks or normal socks, there's maybe one or two watts in there. But that's, sometimes that's a difference. But also the other difference is teams being able to afford not just one, but as many sessions in the wind tunnel as they want, mm. you know. A team can put a rider in the wind tunnel for a day and it costs thousands. It's yeah. such an expensive process. And they, they start to get the big things like the overall position. They start moving the bars or maybe they even test two different types of bars and say, okay, this one's actually better in this position. But other teams are now starting to work out, okay, Nick's for this person only need to go in the mid thigh but for this person all the way down to the knees faster. And then mm. they start saying, put your thumb on top. Or put your thumb underneath. <laughs> yeah. And that can only happen on like the fourth or fifth time you're in the wind tunnel where you start dotting the I's and crossing the T's, whereas other people are first learning the ABC. Yeah. And that's even if they have the money to send them to a wind tunnel. And then let alone, like you have these really nice fast handlebars, but they're still commercial. They're still something that you can buy. Whereas other people are literally having their body put into a position and then a 3D printed bar fits into them. Yeah. So... How do I compete against Gunnar, who is already infinitely more talented and powerful than I am? But then he also has equipment that I have no access to. Even if I pay for it, I can't use it. Yeah. So it's it's just one of these things where I'm finding time trials or the discipline of time trial, which is something I really enjoy doing. It's like a side project. I'm not a specialist, but I've always enjoyed it. It's just one of these things that I look at now and I just think, well... You know, that's not been the direction of my career. So I have to just absolutely forget about it. And I think when we look at to, uh, like the Tour de France, when you have GC, we want to see an exciting GC race. And one of the things that's putting guys one or two or even three minutes in the rear just because of their equipment and it's got nothing to do with their ability. Yeah. For, for me, we're starting to lose a little bit of the integrity of the sport. Yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's right. And yeah, it, it's even the clothing. Some like some teams they make their own clothing, and they make everything exactly for each rider. Uh, where some other teams they have 
shit clothing that's like a t-shirt in the wind and then it's just like riding into a wall all the time because you can't then you can't go 55k an hour on the flats it's it's um it's really developing in a also a super interesting way with all this equipment but it's just you have to be so accurate on everything now yeah and, and i don't say this to sort of like bitch on the teams that are making use of their budget like I would. <laughs> yeah, of course. And if I was on one of those teams, I'd be thinking like, how good is this? Yeah. Well, I'm beating guys that are better than me. But at the same time, it just sort of goes, um, it, uh, that's the cycling model, right? Like some teams have more money. Yeah. And, and that's just something that we have to also accept. And, you know, cycling's also already a sport that the strongest rider doesn't win. It comes down to tactics. It comes down to instinct. It comes down to timing. It comes down to luck. So, you know, it's sort of an inherent part of cycling is that fairness is not the one thing. It's not just putting on a pair of runners and running 100 meters and the best athlete wins. There's so many factors to it. But definitely I felt like in the last five years, time trialing has gone from like, yeah, we're all on pretty similar equipment. Like someone has something a bit faster, but now it's just a space race that, you know, if you didn't get to the moon first, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. We're running out of time, actually. So let's finish off with this last question here. What do you look forward to the most when the season is over? Oh, when I was young, it was just beers and partying. Yeah. Um, Any special food you look forward to just greasing your way through? or oh, Again, it used to be junk food and shit. Like, yeah. But as I've sort of gotten older and realized that like your body needs more love. Like it, there's like an inflection point. I reckon it's about 24 before that. It's like, you can put anything into your body and you generally feel fine. You know, your body recovers and you bounce and you start your first race. You're like, yeah, off season is the best thing to do. <laughs> then there's a point where you're like, Whoa, that doesn't work anymore. And yeah. then my off seasons now are like, wow, how many days can I actually spend at home? Like, how can I go to bed at 10 o'clock and just watch a good movie and like have good home cooked food? Cause you know, we eat so many buffets through the year and yeah, but I think for me, it's it's about going home to Australia and having my mum's home-cooked food. I yeah. think that's always the thing I look forward to the most. Yeah. I sound a bit boring now, and um, don't get me wrong, I used to love having all the fun in the world, but there's a point where your reward is actually the rest and looking after yourself, and that feels better. Cool. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining my podcast. I really enjoyed this, and... Uh it was a nice talk. It was a nice podcast, I think. Yeah, thanks, man. And let's, uh, let's hopefully put some sun cream on your next ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> cool. See you, Nathan. Thank you. Lige her på falderevet vil jeg sige tak for, at du har lyttet med. I den næste episode snakker jeg med Britten, Alex Dowsett, som jeg kører på hold med lige nu. Alex er lidt af en enkeltstartsnørd, så vi kommer helt sikkert til at snakke rigtig meget om enkeltstarter og udstyr i næste episode. Vi optager episoden dagen inden vi starter Romandiet Rundt, så jeg vil udgive min snak med Alex inden Romandiet Rundt er slut. Endnu en gang tak fordi du lyttede med. Vi lyttes ved. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.